Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 192 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Lyme's Neuropsychologist, an interview with Dr. Leo Shea. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, Dr. Shea is one of the Lyme pioneers in the same vein of a Dr. Buroscano or a Dr. McDonald who has been working on Lyme disease before there was a book on Lyme disease. He got his first patient from Dr. Brian Fallon when he was working at a brain trauma clinic at NYU. And what he discovered was that the manifestations of Lyme disease, the cognitive, emotional, and behavioral manifestations were very much like a brain injured person that he had been working with in that clinic. And Rich, I know what a lot of people listening may be thinking. I have a real physical illness. I don't have a mental health problem and I don't need a psychologist. But boy, let me tell you, I thought the same thing and I was wrong. This episode is chock full of information for everybody with chronic Lyme disease. So Matt, we know that the medical community has been inadequate in its response to treating people with Lyme disease. But even worse is the psychological community is even worse. And in fact, most of the people we've interviewed haven't even considered using a psychologist as part of their treatment team. And I think this interview with Dr. Shea is going to change that for everyone. At least I hope it does. So without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Lyme's neuropsychologist, Dr. Leo Shea. Hey, Dr. Shea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Looking forward to discussing this with you guys. Well, we're really excited to discuss the many, many issues that we'd like to discuss with you. My only anxiety today, quite frankly, is whether or not the 90 minutes we have available to work together today is going to be enough. So I do want to promise everyone that if Dr. Shea will agree to a follow-up, well, we will offer a follow-up, but you know, I don't want to ask you to commit to that yet, because if we suck too much today, Dr. Shea, you may not want to follow up with us. So we'll, we'll take this one step at a time. We're, we're going we're going with this with good grace. And so I will say, yes, we'll do a follow up if you need. All right. Great. Dr. Shea, can you please first introduce yourself to our audience by describing uh, or naming your company? Yeah. Um, well, first, I think the audience should know that my interest in, in Lyme disease started back in 1995 and I've been working with it since then. Um, my company's name is neuropsychological evaluation and treatment services in New York and in Boston. And I also serve as a senior psychologist at NYU Langone Health, which was formerly NYU Medical Center, and uh, work as a senior psychologist and a clinical assistant professor of rehabilitation medicine. So now before you became the psychologist that you are today and, and, and develop your impressive resume, generally in the, in the psychology arena. And before you had contact with Lyme disease, you had a whole other life. So talk to us about um, first your childhood and growing up in Boston, and then talk to us about your, um, your educational um, pursuits that predated your, um, your psychology education. Um, well, I grew up in Boston and uh... Uh, very much enjoyed living in the home of the Red Sox and the Boston Celtics and the Bruins. So, um, and at that time, they were all doing quite well in sports, except for the Red Sox, but they finally came through a few years ago. Um, having lived in Boston for a period of time, went to a competitive high school, lots of demands, and then went off to college in Vermont. Um, and when I finished college, I went into the Navy. And following the Navy, I stayed in Miami and began my career in business, and which I continued for the next 25 years 
as an international business consultant in Miami and in London and Paris and Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, some African countries. My interest there was uh, overseeing both the human resources and the administration aspects of those businesses and working in mergers and acquisitions of various companies that we acquired as we went along. So Dr. Shea, I'd like to focus on one element of your uh, life prior to becoming a doctor, and that is that part of what you did when you were working in the business arena is you did um, evaluate and develop tools for uh, corporate leadership and corporate leadership success, which included evaluating the family structure of potential business executives. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, in, in when one is merging or acquiring companies, one has to look at the human resources that are available. And I was always called in to look at the individuals that we were acquiring, who were in particular positions, how we might be able to use them more effectively. And uh, at one time when we acquired a company, I, I and my team had to evaluate 2000 business executives across the United States and then plan their careers. And that was done through a process which we called the war room in which um, all of the managers from across the country would come in annually and present their staff and talk about what their plans were for it. And so we would, we would work with them. Sometimes uh, we were in agreement with them, sometimes not. We would always try to encourage them to make sure that the employees were, they were counting on were employees that we would encourage to get further education or put them in positions laterally that may advance their skill sets so they could move hierarchically up a corporation, either ours or somewhere else. We're always recognizing that people don't always stay with your corporation, but your requirement is, as an employer is to build the skill set of those people who work for you. So if they stay, that's great. If they don't, they go on to other corporations, they bring a skill set with them that's going to be productive for the economy. And so that was an important part of what we did was career path, uh, thousands of executives throughout those 25 years. Part of what we did was because we're into, I worked with international companies, they often had to um, move people to different corporations in different countries. And that's costs quite a bit of money to do that because you're taking someone out of their, uh, their residential environment and moving them to a foreign country with their family, their children, et cetera. Uh, sometimes even more extended families, depending upon the culture. And what we wanted to do was to make sure that the placement was a correct placement and it was beneficial to them. So one of the things I established was a three-day program in which I would meet with the executive and then also um, discuss his, his interest in why he wanted to shift into this position. He already knew that he was nominated for it, but my interest was why he would want it. And so we would spend some time and talk about his career, where he was projecting himself, what he was looking for down line. And then the next day I would be meeting with the spouse. Uh, at that time it was more often men than women, uh, the men, this is a number of years ago. And so I would ask them to develop a day which they thought was important for them. What would they like to do that day? And how would they live their, their normal day with their kids? So I spent that day with, with the spouse and the kids and enjoyed the day with them and watched the interaction of the spouse and the children, had fun, 
the third day, uh, after having spent the first day with the husband um, and the second day with the wife and family, the third day is when I would meet with the, the wife and husband and discuss my observations of um, uh, their interest in moving to a foreign environment, what they felt the obstacles were, uh, what I felt were the advantages for them, and if, if in fact, I felt that they were the best uh, individual family unit to go to that environment. And if they were not, I explained the reasons why. It was never because there was something particularly wrong with the family, but it may not have been the proper fit. Um, the wife may have had some questions about moving to a particular country or concerns about the children's schooling, et cetera. And so that was important to flesh all of that out and help them flesh it out too. It, it was always a, quite a productive um, exercise and that people got more insight into their family unit what their family, in fact, wanted to do uh, as a unit. And uh, at times it was uh, enlightening that an individual um, would find out that they had diverse views about things. And this was the first time that it actually came out. So it was, a, it was an interesting exercise for all of us. And, and it resulted in a much better placement of executives. And uh, it also resulted in less costly process because people were satisfied with the placement and we didn't have to then get someone else and spend more money to do that. So Dr. talk to us about <clears throat> what role that experience played in your understanding of the importance in family, of family in supporting members of the family who are struggling emotionally. Well, one of the things that's, that's a primary is that the family has to be aware of what the value system is of the family and what are the roles that each person plays within the family. So that kind of exercise uh, was able to illuminate for each of the members of the family what role they had and what they felt if they were satisfied with that role or if they wanted a different role. So for all families, what's important is each member has to understand what their role is and agree that that's a role that they wanna play. And if it's not, that needs to be in discussion because if it's not in discussion, what happens is people then find other outlets to satisfy their needs. And that usually ends up in, in a disruptive aspect to the family. People get involved in things that then cause shredding of family values and uh, quite often anger and depression. So now let's talk about your pivot from the business world to the medical community? What inspired you to, after 25 years of uh, working successfully in the business community, what caused you to pivot to the medical community? Well, it wasn't so much a pivot. Uh, um, I had, I, during my college years, had worked at Mass General Hospital as a scrub tech and was always interested in, in uh, not so much the uh, medical field, but the emotional aspects of people who are going through surgery, the emotional aspects of people who are going through recovery. And I thought, you know, someday I, I think I want to go back and get a PhD in psychology because I'm interested in the behaviors that were being manifested. Um, so as life turned out, leaving the Navy, then going into business, I found a great deal of excitement in the business world. And that was always working with people. So it, it kind of morphed into what's the next step. And the next step was, uh, I decided to take some time off and think about uh, whether I wanted to go back to school, whether I wanted to continue in business. I had been doing some political consulting in Washington at the time, 
um, and uh, have been asked to look at organizations in socioeconomic aspects in Washington uh, on a national basis. And after I finished all that, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in, in pursuing that PhD. When am I going to do it? And I thought, well, I'll do it another 20 years. Then I decided, no, you know, now's a good time to do it. You don't have any other holds on you and you can go ahead and do that now. So that's what I did. So talk to us about where that PhD took you professionally. What, where did you begin to work after you graduated from your PhD program and how did your career path develop up until 1995? Yeah, um, what happened was that I went and did a couple of uh, master's degrees and then did my PhD. And, and as a result of one engaged in a PhD program, you have to do an internship. And so you apply to usually medical institutions for that. And I applied to NYU and New York University Medical Center and got accepted into the Rusk Rehabilitation Program, um, which was uh, the, at that time, one of the major rehabilitation programs in the world. And I was very fortunate to go there and spent my internship year there. And then following that, I was asked to join the Brain Injury Day Treatment Program, which had been the first program developed in the United States for brain injury patients. And it was a model that was used by now over 800 programs in the United States. But that was the model that was used. And uh, over that period of time, I became the assistant director of that program. And then following that, um, while I was working at that program, Brian Fallon up at Columbia, who is, heads the Lyme um, program at, at Columbia, called me and asked me if I would look at one of his patients who had Lyme disease. And at that time, I said to Brian, I don't even know what Lyme disease is, but I'll be glad to look at. And the patient came and I became fascinated by it because unlike brain injury, Lyme disease has a more undulating course. And brain injury, you have the onset and then people progressively get better with the right kind of rehabilitation. Um, and they reach a certain point. With Lyme disease, it was undulating up and down, some weeks good, some weeks bad, some months good, some months bad. And that fascinated me. So I called him and said, you know, this is something that I'm really interested in because it's not something that I typically see in these neurological disorders. So send me some more patients. I want to look at this, which he did. And that's where I began my interest in Lyme and other tick-borne illnesses. Yeah. So let's pause there for a second, Dr. Shea, because you are one of the most educated people we've ever interviewed. You have PhDs, you have master's degrees, you have bachelor's degrees, you've, um, you've worked all over the world. And I'm quite frankly surprised to hear that prior to Dr. Fallon contacting you in 1995, you had never heard of Lyme disease. Well, I, had, I should say I had heard of Lyme disease, but I had never treated a Lyme disease patient. So tell us what you knew about Lyme disease prior to treating the first Lyme disease patient you treated in 1995. Yeah, um, well, the one when I knew that it was it was a disease caused by ticks. I didn't re realize the prevalence of the ticks. I didn't realize the prevalence of the disease. Um, in fact, at that time, uh, when I talked about Lyme disease, virtually no one knew about it um, or, had, or had heard about it or, or have treated it. So it beca I became kind of the lead in dealing with Lyme disease patients coming into the rehabilitation center because it interested me so much. Um, all I knew at that point was 
It was caused by a tick. It seemed prevalent in the Northeast, but that was about where I was. And I didn't know all of the cognitive, behavioral, and emotional components that the infection caused. Dr. Shea, you grew up in the Lyme Belt, right? You grew up in Massachusetts. And um, did you know anything about ticks or tick diseases during your childhood or at any time prior to, um, you know, this now experience that you had in 1995? Oh, when I grew up, I grew up in the summers on Cape Cod. There were ticks all over the place. There were mainly dog ticks and nobody ever, never, ever thought anything about them. And most of those, those ticks typically do not um, bring infection with them. So at that time, it was not known. There was never a discussion of a tick, tick disease. Do you ever recall having been bitten by a tick when you were spending summers on Cape Cod? I was, no, I was never bitten by a tick. There were several members of my family. I remember my mom woke up one time and found an embedded tick on her leg. It was a dog tick. And, and uh, my dad had uh, a tick. He was out doing some gardening and had a tick. But uh, us as young children, I don't remember any of us having them. So now let's talk about, you know, your early experiences with working with Lyme disease. And now we're still in this 1995 window. So the book is unwritten on how to treat patients with Lyme disease. What types of clinical observations were you making about your Lyme disease patients that were different than any of the other patients that you were treating? And how were you dealing with that? Well, one of the things that was very clear to me is that when you apply an intervention with someone who has a neurological disorder, you typically believe that intervention is going to improve their functioning. And in this case with Lyme disease, what was very surprising to me is that I saw some improvement when I was doing my work with the patient, but then if they came back the next week, they may not have improved to the level that I expected. They, they communicated to me a decline in their function, which also was surprising to me. Because typically when you are working with individuals who have a neurological disorder, unless it's a progressive disorder and a chronic disorder like dementia, um, you would expect that the interventions you provide, whether they're, so I don't provide any um, drug interventions or pharmaceutical interventions, but I do provide cognitive interventions and behavioral interventions. You expect that those things will improve the person's daily functioning. And with Lyme disease, you would find, this is one of the great conundrums to me early on, was why are these people doing well one week and doing miserably the next week? And not only, I'm just not talking about the physical aspects, I'm talking about their cognitive aspects. Why could they pay attention for 10 minutes to an exercise that I might give them. And then the next week, not be able to hold any of the information in memory. And that, that was confusing to me as to why that was occurring. So Dr. Shea, uh, before we go further, you, you are a neuropsychologist. Can you define what a neuropsychologist is? Yeah, a neuropsychologist is an individual who's interested in brain behavior relationships. So what we're interested in is understanding what is going on with the brain And then whatever that is, how is that impacting a person's cognition, behavior, and emotion? And so we would define that is, when we think of cognition, is what a person knows. Um, If we think of the emotion is how they feel. And if we think of the behavior is how are they acting on that feeling? So we want to know 
all of those three things in order to have a better understanding of how the person's functioning in life. Sometimes cognition's off and that causes a person a decline in, in their daily functioning. Other times it's an emotional component. Other times it's behavior. So we need to know all of those things before we can construct a rehabilitation program for the person. Now with your early patients in and around 1995, were you seeing differences in those three prongs with people with Lyme disease that was different than you were seeing in other patients on those three prongs? Yes. Um, one on the cognitive, from the cognitive portion, you, you saw this up and down, as I say, undulating cycle. We also, in doing that, recognized that there was a, one of the things that you see in neurological disorder is slow speed of processing. People don't process the information as quickly. And that was very clear in Lyme patients. The other thing was their memory factors were off and their attentional factors were off. So what, what I had seen in some of the early patients is they had been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, which was an aspect of their functioning, but it should not have been the diagnosis. The diagnosis should have been a cognitive disorder. And a, a part of the cognitive disorder is you do have attentional problems, but it should not be attention deficit disorder because when you label someone with attention deficit disorder, there's a whole different way of looking at that. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing was the, the volatility of emotions and the variability of emotions that people had um, for a period of time would be doing well. And suddenly for no reason that they could explain, they felt like things were happening inside their body. They became very frustrated. Um, they acted out. Um, parents complained about their children acting out in bizarre ways. Um, adults complained about their spouses acting out in bizarre ways suddenly, um, having impulse control mechanisms, um, kind of rage reactions that would happen, and then also the emotions that would occur there. So the behaviors and the emotions were something that, that stood out because you typically don't see those things occurring except in very psychiatric conditions. And, and uh, one of the conclusions that one has is if you see those in psychiatric conditions or you presume they're psychiatric conditions, you then medicate them psychiatrically rather than understanding that this has a basis of, of a physical basis that needs to be attended to. And if that's attended to properly, you can alleviate some of the others. Now, were you able to identify any patterns that would lead you to conclude that someone needed a medical intervention rather than a psychiatric intervention in your Lyme disease patients? Well, first you would, uh, th that's, uh, it's a good question, but I, I have to say that prior to a, an individual coming to see me or a neuropsychologist, they typically carry with them a medical diagnosis. Now, as a neuropsychologist, that medical diagnosis is what the physician has given them. Uh, most often when we are presented with the patient, it will say the person has Lyme disease or Babesia or anaplasmosis, one of the tick-borne illnesses. And then they want to know how this person is functioning from a cognitive behavioral and emotional standpoint that we can do. There are times when people have have come to us and they may have 
such a diagnosis as, say, attention deficit disorder or as a bipolar disorder. When in fact, in doing the clinical interview, which is generally quite extensive, a couple of hours, you learn that the patient may be living in an endemic area. They may have had a tick bite. None of this may have been observed or none of this may have been um, taken into consideration when the diagnosis was done. Diagnoses often are done um, on a pediatric basis when a parent complains that a child may not be doing well in school and they're not paying attention. The diagnosis may come out as an attention deficit disorder when in fact, it could have the very basis of being a Lyme disease patient who has an attentional problem, but it's not an attentional deficit disorder. So those kinds of things, it, it is really kind of a, a Sherlock Holmes approach of trying to collect all of the data before you make a judgment about this person. Too often what happens in medicine today is that individuals who are presented to physicians, they have eight to 12 minutes generally with the male physician and 12 to 16 with the female, the statistics tell us that. So um, I guess in kind of in a humorous way, you may always want to go to a female because she gives you 50% more time, but you cannot make a good diagnosis of an individual in Lyme disease or any tick-borne illness in 16 minutes, unless they walk in with a bullseye rash on their arm and say, I just got this. This is a very complex disease, and it's a disease that takes time for someone to understand them. Too many of the patients that we see have gone through 10, 20, 30, 40. Remember, one had gone to 62 doctors and had not been diagnosed with Lyme disease until he met the 62nd doctor. So you can imagine how people view the medical world when they have to go through all that and what kinds of psychological impacts that has and really trusting physicians or trusting medicine when they can't give you that diagnosis. Dr. Shea, one of the things that we've observed on this podcast repeatedly is there really is very little, if any, competent testing, medical testing to diagnose Lyme disease and co-infections. So part of what I'm looking to explore with you is, can we see from the outside in by looking at cognition, at, at, at emotions, and at behavioral observations so that we can perhaps le learn about um, diagnosing or at least observing um, from the outside in that would help us to get to a Lyme disease diagnosis. So with that sort of general, general um, uh, introduction, uh, were there any patterns that you saw that were different in patients who had Babesia versus patterns of behavior or cognition or uh, emotional responses from somebody who had Ehrlichia or anaplasma, for example? Yeah, there's um, certainly you, you can see in Babesia and Bartonella um, more likely that a person has um, impulsivity and rage reactions. Um, that's less true of a, a classic Lyme patient. They can have depression and anger because they have not been able to be diagnosed and are frustrated by that. But they don't typically have the same kind of impulse or rage reactions that the others do. And are there any other, are there any other patterns that you would see with any of these other co-infections uh, that would 
help someone to determine whether or not they should be urging uh, their doctor or their child's doctor to test the child or their, themselves for Lyme disease? Well, it's, it, yeah, there are a whole host of, of you know, physical presentations. Uh, I remember getting off the train from uh, New York to Boston and uh, meeting my sister who had just come from the baseball field and said, I said, how'd the game go? And she said, you know, it was, it was great. We won, but one of the boys, um, his side of his face was all kind of hanging down. And his mother said, oh, I think he has Bell's palsy. And I said, well, the first thing you do, you're living in an endemic area. You need to go back to the pediatrician and say to him, hold on for a minute. Have you run a Lyme test on him? And uh, called the mother that night and said, no, this is my suggestion to you, which she did. Called me back a week later in New York and said, guess what? My son has Lyme disease. And the physician didn't even think of it. So that's a physical manifestation that certainly shows up. And anytime you see that in an endemic area, any physician worth his salt should actually have a Lyme test done. Um, seeing an individual who has done extremely well in school, let's say, uh, think of a case of a young man who is going to a French English school, very good student. Um, in his, uh, the year I saw him, he had declined significantly in his reading capacity, in his attention, and people just thought he might be lazy or whatever. Again, in an endemic area, um, when I tested him and saw all of the visual problems that he was having, I said to his mother, I think you need to go and make sure that he has a visual evaluation, not necessarily by an ophthalmologist because they are looking at disease of the eye or illness of the eye, but there are functional optometrists who are looking at how the eye processes the information. And sure enough, what she found was this, this boy had a convergence disorder and uh, that needed, that showed that he could not read the material as well. So he was frustrated by it and was frustrated by his grades going down. And he was also frustrated by the assumptions by the teaching staff that he was just not doing his homework or was being lazy or something was going on with him psychologically. So once we were able to decide what was going on. Uh, there was much, much greater relief on this staff. I went and lectured to the, the school about his, uh, his uh, sequelae to the Lyme disease. And they were, help, they were very helpful in, in accepting that information and being able to, to look out for it with other students. So those are the kinds of things that one looks at. So Dr. Shea, we know autoimmune disorders are very common with people that have chronic Lyme disease. And we know that you offer services, neuropsychological services specifically to people with autoimmune disorders as well. So how do you help people with autoimmune dysfunctions in parallel to people that are suffering from chronic Lyme disease or tick-borne illnesses? Well, you have to, have to ask yourself, what is, the primary, uh, what is the primary emphasis here? Is it the autoimmune process or is it the, the tick-borne process of the, the Lyme disease? Um, autoimmune disorders are, are all up for grabs nowadays because so many people are trying to understand them. And there is, in the past, when someone talked about an autoimmune disorder, they, you know, talking about specific types. Now there are just a panoply of autoimmune disorders that are, people are looking at across the board. Um, that makes it very difficult for anyone to truly understand it. You know, if you look like an autoimmune encephalopathy, 
the question there is many of these people, uh, where does it come from? Well, in, in many young women, it comes from um, ovarian problems. And as a result of that, the autoimmune manifestation is that it looks like a person could have hallucinations or psychosis. They end up getting put into an emergency room where people may not understand that. Um, then say they need to go to a psychiatric institution or a psychiatric ward, which is all the wrong approach. So there, there, it's an emerging field. Probably one of the most interesting emerging fields right now is autoimmune disorders across the board. Um, and we'll be lecturing about that in, in Orlando at the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society in October, um, putting together a, a group of people to discuss the, just that issue. Well, Dr. Shea, while we're on the topic of ILADS and also the International, um, the International Lyme and Associated Disease Education <clears throat> Foundation as well, what role do you play in those two organizations? Well, presently, I'm, I function as, as past president. Um, I have been president of the organization on two different occasions. I've also been um, president of the uh, Educational Foundation on two different occasions. And uh, next year, I've been asked to join the Educational Foundation when I, when I leave the board of ILADS. Um, we have a constitutional requirements that you can only be for so long. And, and I put that into effect because I always want new people coming in and learning. And I want new board members joining so that they can help with the direction of the organization internationally. So I'll be going off the ILADS board this year and uh, I'll move over to the Education Foundation so that we can develop some uh, certification programs for physicians and uh, training programs for physicians. That's gonna be our emphasis is to come out with over the next few years, developing a certification program for physicians working in the field of tick-borne illness. Presently, we have um, within ILADS the opportunity for individuals coming to our conferences to attend a full day, what we call a fundamentals program, which gives them the basic understanding of all of the science or, or much of the science of Lyme disease and tick-borne illness. And now we're going to piggyback on that by developing additional modules that people can take and ultimately uh, arrive at a certification process. It's, it's all in the beginning of the works now. And I think it's gonna be very exciting because it's gonna have standards established for people to be able to practice in this field. Right now, uh, as you probably know, there are many people who find it interesting to engage in the field. And sometimes when it's a new disease or a controversial disease, there are well-meaning people. And other times there are charlatans that jump on the bandwagon. And uh, we are trying to make sure that whoever we train are going to be well-trained to standards that will meet um, professional efficacy. So Dr. Shea, as one of the original members of ILADS, you're now offering a program to help train more physicians become Lyme literate. And I think that's really important because so many people reach out to us on a regular basis saying, I need somebody who can understand Lyme disease in my local community, but I have to leave my state to find that person. So is that really what the goal of that program is that you just described? Yeah, first, I, I should say that I wasn't one of the founding members, but I came, uh, there, there are a group of really extraordinary founding members. Uh, I came uh, a couple of years after that. But the whole focus here is, yes, there, it's to provide a, a standard training program for physicians who want to practice in the field of um, tick-borne illness. 
Um, right now, we don't have that. We, we have individuals who express interest, who have come to our programs and learn, but it's a constant learning process. And our fundamentals program can give them the basic science, but also apart from the science, one has to have patients and clinical information. And we wanna bring all of that together and in, into this certification program. So there will be within the certification program, not just um, uh, paper and pencil work that someone has to do in studying and coming to conferences, but we will also have a mentorship program in which individuals will go out and work with doctors who have been certified and who are fellows in the field of Lyme disease. So Dr. Shea, who are the doctors that are building these programs and modules that are gonna be put out there and offered to the community? Um, they, they are individuals who have been members of uh, ILADS for a significant period of time. Uh, those people who are being brought in to work on it are individuals who have been in the field at least 10 years and considerably more, most of them. And uh, there is a team that is working on it. And that's a very rigorous process because there are obviously there are different approaches that people take in both the diagnosis and the treatment of patients. And what we have done was bring a collection of people together who will put out their ideas and then those ideas get fleshed out until we can come to a sense of unity on, we all agree that this is what has to be done in training. Uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't diversity there, of course there is, but we wanna make sure that there is a standard set of principles that a person learns once they have those and we feel that they have them sufficiently to be certified, we can then let them make their own decisions as to the treatment protocols, et cetera. But they will have been trained in the science of, uh, and in the clinical aspects of Lyme disease. So Dr. Shea, I wanna come back to neuropsychology and the services you offer. So really you help evaluate and treat and rehabilitate people that have cognitive, emotional and behavioral problems but talk to us a little bit more about how people with Lyme disease have emotional consequences from this disease and what those emotional consequences can cause in their healing journey. Sure. Um, one of the things that happens in, in Lyme disease and other controversial uh, diagnostic illnesses is that because there's not a clear set of standards developed, um, and we don't have that in, in Lyme, it, it really is based on archival information, clinical information, and more and more scientific information that uh, because we so many people are interested in it. But one of the things that happens is that an individual who has various physical symptoms of Lyme uh, or even emotional symptoms seeks out that through a medical process first. And if, if they go to a physician who really doesn't understand this, Oftentimes what happens is they get diagnosed with a mental health disorder or a psychological disorder. And the first reaction to that is a person says, listen, I know my body, this is not a mental health problem. This is a physical problem. Of course, if you say that often enough and argue with the physician, they're gonna say, see, I told you, it is a mental health problem because you're just not listening and you're resistant. So what happens personally here is that we have to evaluate the individuals on the basis of what are your feelings? Tell me about that. Well, I'm frustrated because no doctor is able to diagnose me. Well, for those of us in the field, when we hear that, we then have to think about who, who do I know that I could offer as a possible physician for them to go to? 
Um, and that's, that's always important. I always like to give people the names of three different physicians. Uh, I don't want to center on any one of them. They can make their decision and they can call them. But one of the things that's so important in this field is too often people have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder or it's all in your head kind of thing. And that becomes so frustrating that it builds up in the person's um, emotional sequelae that they either don't want to be attended to by physicians. And we see that often with children. Children will say, I don't want to go to another doctor. You know, I'm tired of people prodding and poking me. Adults saying, I've been through you know, 30 doctors, and no one's been able to alleviate these physical problems I have with the headaches and the pains and uh, the fevers, et cetera, and the fatigue. And I, I just, I'm giving up. And so that then, that morphs into a sense of depression. And uh, that depression can be seen by, if they go to other doctors, they can be seen as a primary cause. You know, you're depressed. Yeah, of course I'm depressed. Who wouldn't be depressed if no one's been able to tell me all of the things that are going on in my body, which I know are real, but um, I can't convince you of that. So what we attempt to do is, is, is just as we do in trauma patients, and these certainly are trauma patients in their own right, is we say to them, listen, feeling abnormal is normal. That is what you're supposed to feel. Because if you felt normal, then there would be something wrong. Of course, you're going through this and you know that you're having this experience. It's not some kind of fantasy. It's not some kind of illusion. I recognize what it is. I understand it. And I accept that that's, that's what you're feeling. So let's talk about what we can do to alleviate that. And then I go through and what, what is the history that they have had, et cetera. And it's, it's, it's typical to what we say to interns or postdocs when you're working, say, in a pediatric field you will say to them, you know, the one thing you have to remember is listen to the mother. That, that is the person that is with the child all the time. Now that doesn't mean the mother's always right, but you, the mother is the one who collects that data. And I always tell them, you know, if you look in the mirror, you'll see that on your face, you have two ears and one mouth. So listen twice as much as you speak. You wanna collect all that data before you come up with any sense of diagnosis. You need to take time with the patient and you need to let the patient know that you are willing to take the time with them. Now with Lyme disease patients, I always, when I'm lecturing to our interns or postdocs, I will tell them, you have to spend a great deal of time up front, understanding their whole history, understanding where they've lived, understanding their culture, all of this stuff before you even get to the medical components of this. Because that's going to tell you, as a member, I was a director I uh, was dealing with who was cutting film rather helter skelter that he had done. And people thought that he was crazy. Well, the truth is that he had Lyme disease and that where he had filmed up in the Hudson and nobody had picked that up. And they thought that he was going through some mental decline. But quite in fact, it was it a sequelae of his Lyme disease that was presenting itself. And once that was done and he was properly medicated, he was fine. Dr. Sherry, let's do some reverse engineering. You, uh, you had some experience before you became a psychologist with evaluating families and the impact that uh, families would have on the success, for example, of a corporate executive. Um, yes. What, 
is what would you be looking for or what would one of the doctors you're training be looking for when evaluating a family to determine whether or not Lyme disease was a, um, was a potential diagnosis? Well, first, I, I would want to ask if I were working with all members of the family in the, in the room, I would want to ask them what their understanding is, what was going on in the family right now. Uh, and that, that's, that's a key element. Uh, as I said before, I want to know what they think their role is and what they think the other people's roles are in the family. The key to getting families to work uh, within a Lyme, Lyme diagnosis is to ensure that they are aware of what the diagnosis is, that they understand what Lyme is, that they understand how it can impact the patient and then how, what their role is in helping the patient or not. There are times when um, other people in the family think I'll take the primary role. You guys continue to do what you need to do, go to school, play basketball, whatever. I'll take the rest of it. When you don't have that level of awareness and that level of education present in the family, what begins to happen is splits occur. Siblings get angry with one another because the patient is getting paid attention to and my needs are not getting met. Dad feels that mother might be pandering to the child and he should bootstrap himself more and get out. Or mother feels that the father's doing that. So these splits begin to occur. And part of that coming about also is not about just the disease. It's about the way the family has interacted with each other for a very long time, because the disease introduces a stimulus that either supports the unity of the family or causes a, a recognition of the dysfunctional family as it has existed for quite a while. So Dr. Shea, talk to us more about how somebody in a position who had a sibling, for example, so I'm a Lyme patient and my sibling never been supportive of my diagnosis or my treatment, what advice do you give people that you, that you help to address those siblings and not harbor resentment and anger towards their family members who never really believed them or supported them in their journey? Well, I, I typically, as I say, when you work with family, you have all of the family members present. So um, you have that discussion about what would it be like if in fact you had Lyme disease? How would you, how would you see yourself functioning? I wanna know what, how they would reflect upon that rather than talking about their, their brother. I also wanna know from them how this um, disease has impacted their lives. I don't wanna know about the patient. I wanna know how it's impacted their lives. And if this disease were not present, how would their life be different? And they, in doing that process, they begin to take an inward look at themselves. And very often what happens over time is they become much more compassionate to the brother because they are the sister. They understand something that they didn't before because what they do is they get in touch with their own feelings. If this were me going through this process, how would I feel about it? And so when I, once I know that, then I have to think about how this might be going on. And then I have a dialogue going on between the two of them is, tell me about your feelings about this illness, you, the patient. Explain to your brother or your sister or your father or your mother what it's like for you, how that's made a difference for you. 
Now I want you to tell me what you just heard your brother or your sister say to you or your son just say to you. I want, I want you to tell me exactly what you just heard him say. Because too often what happens is people hear something and then they interpret it in their own way. I don't want them to interpret it. I want them to tell me exactly what they just heard from the individual. And the, when they can say that, the person might say, well, that isn't exactly what I said. Here is what I really said. And you have that dialogue going back and forth until they come to a sense of understanding, the two of them. So you really understand what's going on with me. Yeah, I'm glad you do. Yeah, I really understand what's going on for the first time. It is that kind of taking um, the gold and kind of separating the gold from the dross, you know, putting the heat on them. And that separates up their misunderstanding and increases their understanding. Dr. Shea, during the course of our almost 200 podcast episodes, we come to the conclusion that having family support is a vital element to healing. Have you in your clinical experience seen patients fail to improve their health because they didn't have family support? And by contrast, have you seen um, patients improve as a result of having family support and understanding after a diagnosis? Yeah. Um, first, I, I want to say that when we talk about family, um, historically, we talk about biological families, but uh, given the kind of uh, society that we have where maybe biological families are not the in fact family, it may be some kind of unified family or blended family, depending upon the marital process. It may be that none of that is true, that a person, I always remind people that family is, is whom you diagnose as family or designate as family. Um, oftentimes people will see family as their peer group. That can happen in adolescence. Um, the, weight, the weight of impact is much more in, with a peer group in adolescence than it is with other family members. So I'm always concerned or interested in knowing who you designate as your family. Once I know that, then I, then I have to go and find out whether those people you have designated as family, you also designate as your support group. So those are two different elements. Um, once we can agree that the, let's say the traditional family, mom, dad, and the kids all agree that they are a family and that they wanna work together, um, then that's, that's a helpful thing. You've got a unit that you can work with. When you don't have that and you have dysfunction, the question is, what kind of, what kind of intervention can you make? Do you have to first get the dysfunction taken care of before they can e even understand the Lyme or the tick-borne illness? But one of the things we absolutely know, and this is true across not only Lyme disease, tick-borne illness, any illness, all rehabilitation, is the ability for a person to improve is predicated on the ability to have a support network that will continue with that person. Now, in many cases, what happens is an individual, let's say in a car accident, a person gets into a car accident, everybody coalesces around the person. Uh, the first two weeks, they're on life support, they're off, they're doing better. Little by little, that support network that's around them dwindles until there is a finite group that is willing to stay on and work with this patient long-term. That may be just the mother, it may be the father, it may be a sister, but it's not the 30 people who showed up individually at the first, the first instance. 
The same thing is true in Lyme disease. Once people have it, um, families coalesce around that. They say, well, this is, we've got to help them. We'll drive them to school. We'll do the other things. Um, but over time, people begin to live their lives. And they also become frustrated by the lack of diagnosis or the lack of improvement at times. And then the question is, well, have we got the right doctors? Do, how much money do we have to spend for this? Can we do IVIG treatments? Uh, are we gonna to have to downsize the house? All of these things impact on the family. And so it's a constant process. When these things are changing, you need to make sure that everybody in the family has a buy-in to this because if they don't, slowly they start shredding each other. So I'm always saying, what's the change that's going on in the family now? Let's make sure everybody understands it. They may not all agree to it, but if they understand it, you're not gonna have the fractures. If they don't understand it, then you're gonna have those fractures. And that's why when I'm dealing with the family, I wanna make sure that everybody in the unit understands what we're, what's going on right now. Contemporary issues are important. Let's talk about buy-in a little bit more, Dr. Shea, because one of the things you talked about earlier was many of your patients have had to go through 20, 30, 40, in one case, 62 different doctors before a diagnosis. Yeah. And one of the concerns that we hear raised repeatedly is that families become more and more resistant to accepting a Lyme diagnosis as they, the family unit, collectively receive a non-Lyme diagnosis or a misdiagnosis for a long period of time. So you can talk to us about not only the impact that the failure to have a, prior, uh, a proper diagnosis has on the patient, him, him her, or their self, but also the impact that the misdiagnosis has on the family and the family's ability to support the Lyme patient even after a diagnosis. Yeah, well, that, that goes back to what I'm talking about is the pre-existing components of a family. Uh, very often when you have the kinds of discord that you're talking about here, is that's, that's an endemic discord that ex has existed prior to any of these physical diagnoses, uh, how people communicated to one another. What well, but wait a minute, Dr. Jay, let me, let me ask you to pause there for a second. What if we had a family where there wasn't discord, but the discord was created by all the doctors giving other diagnoses so that the family members ultimately don't buy into the Lyme disease diagnosis? Well, that, that, that is not an uncommon process in which people in the family say, you know, you've been to 10 doctors and they, none of them think you have Lyme. And now suddenly someone comes up and says you has Lyme. And you know, how come this wasn't discovered before? And, and when did this happen? People go through a lot of machinations as to how they wanna deal with this. And the thing is you have to bring that family in, collectively sit down and talk about what is it that, there is almost a sense of an accusatory process here that's underlying the process. You have to say, what is going on that causes you to believe that this is not in fact real now? I, I want to know all of the reasons for that. And once I can do that, I can then turn that around and convince people, hopefully, that what was perceived in the past was incorrect, inaccurate. What is perceived now is accurate. And how do they want to deal with that now that they recognize that this is, in fact, what has befallen the person that they supposedly love? 
So Dr. Shea, let's circle back to the comment you made earlier by saying people with chronic Lyme certainly have trauma because of that. So we've interviewed many people, including somebody just today, right before you, who have said that they've recovered their health. They've eliminated all their symptoms due to Lyme disease, but they still have this trauma from Lyme, this medical trauma and this medical PTSD. And that's very common among all chronic Lyme patients. So how can you help people in the chronic Lyme community who are suffering from medical trauma and medical PTSD? Well, <clears throat> the idea of, uh, there, there are a number of different interventions for trauma. Um, it depends upon the nature of the trauma, if it's war trauma, if it's sexual trauma, if it's medical trauma. There are different interventions for that, some which can be used for all initially, but you really have more specialized uh, treatment protocols for depending upon the type of trauma. Um, trauma, people get into airplane accidents. What do you do for them? How do you normalize their travel again? Uh, people who have been raped or sexually abused, how do you then build a sense of trust for them in, in, in the society in which they live? Um, and, that, and that crosses cultures nowadays. Um, immigrants coming across the border deal with a lot of them and, and what their traumas are there. So trauma is, a, is a, a very expansive process. The trauma of medicine is that individuals have placed their faith uh, or are told to place their faith in people whom they believe uh, have an education and an understanding far beyond their own. So they place that faith. And then when that faith is, is not imbued with authenticity, what happens is people begin to doubt not only the medical world, but anybody who's supposed to be an authority. It starts breaking down their views of whether there's anybody who really understands them, if there's anybody that they can really trust. And that begins to happen not only for the external world, but also the internal world. And, and when I say internal world, I mean those personal relationships they have. Can they trust their peers? Can they trust their spouses? Can they trust their teachers? It goes across a whole panoply in the world of, of uh, socioeconomic environments and cultural environments, um, depending upon, you know, is it, what kind of doctors treated them? Were they Caucasian doctors, depending upon the culture? they may now not want to be treated with a Caucasian doctor, or they may not want to be treated with a, an Indian doctor because those are the people that caused them the problem in the past. So you really have to understand where did the trauma come from and how did it evolve? And once you know that, you then go back and talk about how you can remove that sense of trauma from them. How do you rebuild their trust? And that's the, that's a key is how do you rebuild someone's trust in a world which has injured them and, and hurt them? Let's dig a little bit deeper about the concept of medical PTSD. Is there a difference between physical PTSD and experiential PTSD in your mind? Um, I think when you have to first ask the, the patient what the experience has been, and it's easy to throw around the term PTSD. Um, I see it all the time in, in people with car accidents in a petitioning for insurance coverage. Uh, the question is, is it really PTSD or is it anxiety or is it depression? PTSD has you know, a number of components that have to be met. And from the standpoint of PTSD is just because I've been injured by someone at one time, does that constitute PTSD? 
Um, those are all the questions you have to first figure out before you give a diagnosis of PTSD. But because of the nature of the illness, um, what one and, and the constant need to be seen by physicians or be seen by adjunct care people, the likelihood for PTSD being developed in a chronic patient is much higher if they are not in the hands of competent people. And we know with tick-borne illness and Lyme disease, certainly in the early years and still continuing, even though people are more knowledgeable of it, um, that people get into the hands of physicians and other treaters who have very little knowledge of the disease and they make, they make assumptions about other diagnoses. Oftentimes, those assumptions are generated into the field of mental health. And once a person gets into that process, it's very hard to get out of it because doctor's records then say depression, anxiety, nothing that says they have this actual physical illness. And you have to rectify that by encouraging the person to know that you can build their self-advocacy. They have an ability to be able to take control of their lives. They have a need to advocate for themselves. They have a need to question. And in the past, they just assumed that because they went to someone who held a title, that that individual knew what they were doing. There are oftentimes they don't. So my view is, I want you to become one aware of why you think you have PTSD. Tell me all the components of that. And if that is true, now I want to let's build Let's build your self-efficacy and your self-advocacy. And those are two different things. I want to train you how to ask all the questions you need to ask when you are going to deal with anybody who is supposed to have some kind of authority over you. So Dr. Shea, are you arguing that part of the solution to medical PTSD in the chronic Lyme community is taking ownership and self-advocating for yourself and giving up that control that you fully gave over to doctors previously? Oh, I absolutely. I have no, no question about that. And especially nowadays where physicians have uh, not uh, a sufficient amount of time to look at in individuals who are experiencing what could be rather con controversial manifestations, physically, behaviorally, emotionally. You need to take time with the patient. I, and if I say to patients all the time when they go into the doctor, they say, well, you know, I feel like I'm shredded because I have four different doctors and they all take 12 minutes to see me. I said, well, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go in with a pad of paper. I want you to list all your questions. I want you to say to the doctor when you sit down with them, so glad to see you, glad to be here. Let's talk about what's going on. I have a list of questions here I want answered before I leave today. Um, how would you like to uh, proceed? Doctors might say, well, why don't you tell me the questions you have now? Or let's go on and then I'll answer them at the end. And I would say to them, make sure you get your questions answered. If the doctor says, well, I've finished. And they say, you say, well, you haven't answered my questions. And we agreed when I started this, that you would answer the questions. So let me go through the questions right now. That's the way you want to present yourself. You want to take control of that. You want to recognize that the physician is there to help you. He is not there to dominate you. He is not there to insult you. He is there as a partner in this process. Dr. Shea, if we can go into a little more detail. So you mentioned earlier that 
sometimes people think they may be suffering from PTSD, but it really might just be anxiety or depression. How do we identify and define what's PTSD versus what's anxiety versus what may be just depression? Well, you know, in, in PTSD, you're going to have both anxiety and depression as components of it. The question is, what, what, is the, what was the occasion that had the onset of PTSD has a particular onset, right? There, there has to be something that occurred that causes this sense of trauma. Um, I, you know, you, you crash landed in an airplane. Okay, that's an incident. You were underneath the building in 9-11. That's an incident. You're in a car accident. That's an incident. The idea that it evolves over time that I was, I don't know, I was just feeling blue and I felt sad. And was there anything that had an onset to that? No, not really. It just kind of, you know, I started, I lost my job, but that wasn't a big deal. I got another one. And, but I've been feeling like I'm just kind of blue. Well, that's not PTSD. PTSD has a clear onset of something. You may not recognize it in the moment, but you clearly can go back to it and say, this is what happened. I never put that together. The, the loss of you know, my child, um, the killing of my mother. Those are all incidents which can cause PTSD. Now, they don't always cause PTSD. Um, one would think that they would, but there are some people who um, have certain kind of defense mechanisms that just avoid that. Uh, it usually plays out in a lot of other ways in their life, but uh, it may not be what the diagnosis of PTSD. Although if you spend enough time with them, you could diagnose that. Um, there are many people who are in concentration camps, immigration camps that um, go through just horrific, uh, horrific incidents, uh, but they block those out and they may not ever want to visit them again. So you may never get that story. And so you may not know the onset, but so you typically have an onset. There is a significant onset, which has a major impact in a person's life that is PTSD. So Dr. Shea, in the chronic Lyme community, it could be your loss of health, it could be social isolation from Lyme disease, and it could be any really of these things that occur as a result of your illness that trigger your PTSD, correct? Yeah, it, but more often than not, what it is is um, the idea that you know you have this illness, that you, you are not imagining this, and people are telling you that you don't have it. That is what initiates the PTSD with Lyme disease. And so with Lyme disease, the, the person may not always have PTSD. I mean, medical, it may be that they do have depression or that they do have anxiety about, you know, a ne another needle going into their arm. Um, but it may not be post-traumatic stress disorder. The post-traumatic stress disorder comes because the individual has felt that they have been so diminished by particular physician, or they may have been um, put into a psychiatric ward when they should have been put into a medical ward and that initiated the PTSD, those kinds of things. It, it has a specific focus that you need to uncover. And sometimes it's not very present until you uncover it through psychotherapy. Dr. Shea, let's talk about the impact that PTSD has on the body's capacity to physically heal. Does PTSD prevent someone from healing physically? Uh, PTSD can impact the autoimmune system of an individual. It can impact um, any number of organic systems in the individual. It can impact 
brain function. Um, so there are many different organs that can be impacted by post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, the idea is how do we get to that and unlock that so that an individual doesn't have it remaining with them for a significant period of time, because the longer it remains, the more damage it does to the human system. So we've seen on social media very recently, uh, many people arguing that there's a connection between the neurological system and the immune system. Um, do you believe that to be the case? And if you do, do you believe PTSD interfering with the immune system would, I mean, interfering with the uh, neurological system would interfere with the immune response? Well, there are a whole host of, uh, as we're understanding more the components of the interactive process in the physical system, the gastrointestinal system um, with the brain system, with the gastrointestinal system and its ability to modulate the immune system. There, that's a whole area that's being looked at now and has in the past been looked at, but not with the same uh, gravitas that it is now. I think that what happens is when an individual is diagnosed correctly with PTSD, it has a significant impact on their neurological function. And that also results in a significant impact on their immune function. Now that can be interactive. You could have it more of an impact on their immune system first, and then that impacts the neurological system or vice versa. So the body is always interactive. You know, it's the idea of when someone has uh, slowness of kidneys and calls upon the cardiac system to produce um, more, the cardiac system gets worn out, the kidneys get worn out, and somebody, ultimately it's a major problem. We're always interactive in our systems you know, within the, the medical world. And so we have to understand what's the organicity of and how it impacts each of the organs. And what do those organs then cry out to the other organs to produce? So Dr. Shane, your experience, have you treated any patients who are suffering from PTSD related to their Lyme disease who were not able to heal until you were able to work with them to modulate the PTSD? Um, I've worked with uh, any number of patients who have come in with um, what appears to be um, PTSD from a medical standpoint that it was caused by medical intervention. Uh, and that, that can be from surgery, it can be from uh, treatment, it can be from um, the lack of attention to the diagnosis, the misdiagnosis, the misperception of the patients, all of those things. When they come to me and we are dealing with this traumatic event and that traumatic event has occasioned Really, real changes in behaviors that are observed not by the patient, but by everyone around them, then the question there that I have is, how do we remediate that? Do you want to get back to normal functioning? And what do you think is stopping you from doing that? And that takes a great deal of time when it is a true PTSD component. Some people say, well, you can do this with EMDR, you know, you move your eyes around and, and you suddenly get rid of PTSD. Um, if you really want to think about PTSD as having a controlling mechanism in the body, you want to be able to have the patient first understand what that is. Now, they're going to tell you some of the complaints that they have physically, 
but they may not understand that those are based on the emotional components that they've been experiencing. So you have to make that much more vibrant to them. And in doing that, you also, one of the key components to alleviating PTSD is to get the patient to cognitively control whatever that event is. So there are different kinds of therapies to do that. You want the person to explain, some of the therapies are repetitive where you have them explain over and over again until they have such a grasp of it that they now feel they are in control of this and it's not in control of them. Dr. let's let's walk back to the re-engineering questions that I was asking you before. Um, what is happening in the brain when somebody is suffering from a tick disease, whether it be Lyme or one of the co-infections, to the brain that's causing the cognitive, emotional, and behavioral issues that you're observing as a pattern in Lyme patients? Yeah. Um, well, what happens is with neuroborreliosis, is, of course, is that that is when the um, disease causes a blood-brain barrier, and it, it in fact causes a diminution in the process of the normal brain function. So when you have the normal brain functions at a certain level, but what occurs here is when you have neuroborreliosis, the speed of processing and the axons and the neurons slow down. So you have a person who may not be able to read as fast as they did before, to be able to attend for a period of time to um, say a financial document, um, a person who has to read lawyers briefs and cannot do that because it's just too complex for them. These all result from the slowness of processing in the brain mechanisms. And then slowness in processing impedes the attention, it impedes the concentration. And when you don't have good concentration and attention, you have a reduction in memory. Your brain is not able to consolidate and code the information and retrieve it as quickly as it did in the past. So what you see in these Lyme patients is that neuroborreliosis has slowed the function of the axons and neurons, and they therefore cannot produce as quickly as they did before. And it slows down their attention, their concentration, their reaction time, their memory, their ability to deal with complex items, which we call executive functioning, because there are too many pieces at one time for them to encode. So they can only encode one and they miss all the others. That leads to poor decision-making. All of that occurs because of that malfunction and brain function. Now, do you know why? Do you know why the Borrelia is causing the slowdown in the brain function? Meaning, is it because the bacteria itself is um, inside the cell? What is causing the delay? Well, when when we look at the Borrelia, we look at how it impacts all the cellular mechanisms of the system, and so you, you know there are real there are a number of views as to how the cells are impacted by the Borrelia. And once you have cells impacted by the Borrelia, that impacts the neurological functions of the brain. Now, when Dr. Dr. Shea, when Matt and I first started working together, Matt couldn't read. And Matt is actually also a coder and he had some concerns about whether he was ever going to be able to code again. Um, in your experience, is there any intervention short of IV antibiotics 
that would allow somebody to regain those cognitive speeds that they lose when they are suffering from uh, neuro, neuroborreliosis? Um, well, there are certainly, there are a number of interventions that people think can do that. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, really the person that could answer that question properly. Okay. I, can tell you, I can tell you that um, you see much better um, results when you have neuroborreliosis with IV antibiotics. Um, and that has been uh, fairly accepted standard. It does not always mean that it works, but the, there is that. There's also IVIG that people use. Um, the history in the past where people used steroids is not a good one, um, although many people improve cognitively with steroids, but it has lots of other problems. And it's certainly not one that's recommended with Lyme patients. Um, so um, when, when an individual has a, a Lyme problem, you obviously go to in an allopathic standpoint, you go to oral antibiotics. And then uh, oftentimes a physician will ask a neuropsychological evaluation to be done to see whether in fact um, those oral antibiotics have been helpful, or if the person still experiences significant declines, they may want to go to uh, IV antibiotics. Now, not all physicians do that, but if they do go to IV antibiotics, there is a tendency for those antibiotics to improve cognitive functioning significantly. Does it hold? Uh, that's the other question. Do any of these things hold? Um, it, it really depends upon the gravity of and the seriousness of the disease when it was originally presented to the physician and how long it's been in situ. Can you talk to us about fight or flight and the impact that Lyme disease has on the fight or flight versus the rest and digest modes? Um, well, that goes, that goes back to a, uh, a mechanism by which the individual um, has developed most likely prior to any kind of physical ailment. How have they dealt with the world? There are those people who, because of their, the way they have been constructed or the way they've been taught or the role model that has been developed for them, it's flight or flight when you have that or you use another method. Um, it, it really depends upon the person's characterological makeup. There are times when there are certain, certain neurotransmitters and other kinds of um, interactions in the body that cause a person to react more quickly or less quickly. Uh, but it also depends upon the history of their experience. If someone has been um, in, a, in a circumstance in which they have used the flight mechanism as a way to save themselves, and that has been effective, they may continue to use that. If they use the fight mechanism, they may continue to use that. Uh, it really depends upon the circumstance. It also depends upon what their history has been in using that. What is, what is the relationship between fight or flight and PTSD, if any? Well, there, there is a relationship. 
Um, and those are two modalities that a person would, would um, utilize when confronted with PTSD. There are those people who may want to go on to an attack mode because the experience that they had in the past was so hurtful that they're not gonna let that happen again. Or they may wanna go into the flight mode because they would say what they experienced in the past was so hurtful that they never want to experience that again. It depends upon what they think is going to be successful for them. We've worked with a lot of folks through this podcast and through other contacts we've had where their mindset was interfering with their capacity to start treatment. In your experience, other than medical gaslighting, what other reasons do people ultimately get stuck in a mindset that prevents them from getting uh, treatment, including the physiological impact of the Borrelia in their brain or some other co-infection in their brain, preventing them from having a mindset that will allow them to envision a positive outcome? Oh, I think there, there are a number of them. Um, there may be um, an individual may have a view that um, the expense of whatever the treatment that's been uh, offered uh, is not, uh, not available to him or, uh, or her. It may be that um, that treatment is uh, not within the geographical um, locations. It, it may be that the demands, um, uh, the financial demands on the family are too much and the person doesn't wanna sacrifice that for the well-being of other members of the family. It may be that they don't wanna burden someone with um, uh, providing them the support they may need. Um, it may be that in the past they've heard that uh, it hadn't, what, it, the particular medication or the intervention hasn't worked for anybody else they know, so why should they go do it? Um, you know, there are, there are a whole host of reasons why an individual would say, I don't, I don't wanna do this because, it, and, and a lot of it has been, no matter what I do, it doesn't seem to get better. No matter, what I, no matter what I did, my friend who had it didn't seem to get better. Why should I waste the time? I'm just gonna suffer through it. Um, the, there are lots of reasons for that. So what tools and strategies would you recommend, Dr. Shea, that can help people overcome these false beliefs so they can get treatment or continue to try treatments to help get themselves better? Well, first, uh, I think one of the first things you want to do is, do you believe you have the disease? Um, and if the person says, yeah, I believe I have it. Well, does it make sense not to do something when you have a disease? If you had a, if you cut your arm and it was bleeding, would you put a bandaid on or just let it bleed? Um, so there is a need here for practical reality. You've been diagnosed with this. Do you believe you have, that diagnosis is correct? Maybe the diagnosis is wrong. And the person says, I think they're crazy. This isn't what I have. And we see this all the time with Lyme patients because they get other diagnoses when they really know that's not an appropriate diagnosis. So first thing you've got to get them is understand, are, are you in agreement with this diagnosis? Second, if you have it, can it get worse for you? Could it get chronic? Could it get progressive? Do you want that to happen? If you do, what do you think that's going to end up? How is that going to impact your life? How is it going to impact your family? Okay, so don't you think it's a wise idea to attend to this now and stop it from all those things that are happening? Uh, what's your buy-in to the people around you? Uh, yeah, it may be more expensive for them and you may have to downsize or whatever you have to do, but in the long run, aren't you an important person in their life and aren't, aren't they important to you? And if that's true, let's get on with this thing. So Dr. Shea, let's come back to what we were talking about earlier as far as neurological Lyme disease. And we talked about using IV antibiotics to treat, but you also brought up IVIG several times. 
So how can IVIG help treat neurological Lyme disease? Well, that, that is a uh, question that's still open. There are a number of studies that say that it can be helpful. There are a number of patient reports that say it has not been helpful at all. It's a very expensive um, intervention. It helps with uh, peripheral neuropathies. Oftentimes people will have these peripheral neuropathies and IVIG is, is a very effective mechanism for that. And so uh, it, is, it is an area that people think is helpful. Some people have reported that it's extremely helpful and has been very successful. Other people say that it has some value, but uh, given the expense and the long-term results, it's not been something great. Other people feel that they've, sp- they've had it and it's done nothing for them. Um, I think we're still quite open to the studies of how effective is that. It's certainly effective for peripheral neuropathies is, is not a question there, but is it effective for all of the manifestations of Lyme disease that certainly that's open. So you also mentioned using steroids as well, and that's been proven to not be as effective. So in the past, they would use steroids to treat neurological Lyme disease? Well, it wasn't, it was because it wasn't necessarily um, that they understood it was that it was uh, neurological Lyme disease or that it was even Lyme disease. They used it on a misdiagnosis basis. And then there are other times when people said, well, steroids helps cognition maybe because you feel your cognition's gone down, um, we'll give you some steroids. But they didn't understand that the basis for that was the Borrelia in the system. And why have steroids been proven not to be a good tool to treat neurological Lyme disease? Is it because it suppresses the immune system, which only makes the Lyme disease worse? Well, that's, that's certainly one of the hypotheses about that. And it's the one that's most often used to say that it, it is not of advantage to the immune system. Remember steroids, nobody wants to be on steroids for long-term because, um, I mean, there are some illnesses that require it, but you don't want to be on it because of the damage that it does to the organ system in the long-term. Um, also, you recognize what steroids does to increasing the weight of the individual. It also becomes somewhat addictive for the individual who feels good on steroids. Um, but it causes behavioral problems and emotional problems in the long run. So it has an addictive quality to it if you you keep using it for a sustained period. And there are people who say, oh, I feel good on it because my emotions, I think, are better. And also my cognition is better, so why not keep it up? But this is a very dangerous path if you continue to use steroids over long term. And you've seen steroid rages, you've seen steroid murders, you've seen that individuals have to keep increasing the, the um, diagnosis, the, the dosage of uh, steroids in order for them to increase their co- cognitive capacity. And when that doesn't happen, they're also getting much heavier too. Um, and so you talk about steroid weight uh, around the waist. Um, all of these things ultimately come into a person's vision of how they have changed and they dislike themselves greatly. And they're very angry, usually, at the physicians who have kept them on steroids. 
So Dr. Jim, my final question before handing it back over to Rich and we end this interview is you talk a lot about in your practice using resiliency and you want your patients to understand the role of resilience and healing. So can you go into some detail for us about what you mean by that? Sure. I mean, one of the things that I think we want to inculcate in every human being is that they, one, they have value and two, they have um, a skill set which they need to apply to this world to make it a better place for themselves and for everyone else. And I want them to recognize that what they possess innately within themselves as human beings is it can make a contribution to this world. And I want them to think about what that is. And then once they have thought what it is, and that takes time because they, they may not recognize what that skill set is. They may not recognize that they have a gift or they may be in such a depressed state that they can't even think of it. But once we have moved them to a level in which they can say, I do have something that I can offer this world. I do have something that I'm proud of. I do have something that I can give to other people. Once we know what those defined components are, that's when you begin to build that into a resiliency that says, you know, you never have to worry because you have these components that you can use to defend for yourself, to advocate for yourself, to make your life a better place, to make this world a better place. And it's because you have them. And the more you use them, the stronger they're going to get and the more resilient you're going to be. But you have to believe that. So, Dr. Shea, rarely have we, in our experience over the last couple of years of doing this podcast, come across people who have been treated competently by the medical community generally, meaning the, the MD uh, community. But even more rarely do we find our guests and members that we, of the community that we interact with being treated competently or at all uh, psychologically. Um, is ILADS or, or some other entity working to train more psychologists? And is there going to be a greater emphasis on bringing a team of people together that includes a psychologist for all people going through the ILADS training? Yeah, um, it's, it's a really good point. Um, last year, uh, for the first time, ILADS did a full day presentation on mental health and Lyme disease in San Francisco. I was one of the presenters there. And it was a very successful day. It was predominantly for psychiatrists on the West Coast, which was a, a really a wonderful thing. We had over a hundred people there. And um, that was great for us to be able to present the uh, psychological components of Lyme disease and have discussions of clinical cases. Um, as we are developing the certification program, I am proposing and uh, it has been accepted that we will have a mental health track. We're going to expand that. We're gonna do more mental health webinars. Um, we're going to be doing um, a track that will, I'm not sure that we'll go towards certification of mental health practitioners, but it certainly will be focused on having people understand the um, psychological components of Lyme. And we're going to build that into our one day fundamentals program. And we're also going to build that into the physician certification program. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Leo Shea. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Leo Shea, please visit his website at leoshea.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. 
Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, the members of our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.